We are uh, now in the second, in, uh, as we continue through our series in the book of Joshua, as we look at a promise-keeping God as presented to us in Joshua. So if, uh, if you are able, if you will, uh, by the way, I'm going to be in two passages, Joshua chapter 2, and then we're going to be jumping down to first, uh, jumping over to 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 3, and you want to, might want to keep your finger in both those, because we'll be kind of flipping back and forth. So uh, if you are able, if you'll stand with me now for the reading of God's word. And this is uh, a bit lengthy, so if you have to sit down, I understand, I understand. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men sent out, set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that, led, that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and when you came out of Egypt and, uh, and Og and the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, Please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down and unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and your, all your family into your house, if any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads for we will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. <coughs> Excuse me. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet lord and cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. 
They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. And now to 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. They have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you loved him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the suffering of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that they have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord, as we spend time in the book of Joshua and in the letter of Peter, we pray that your Holy Spirit, who is just as present and powerful in the working and the writing of these words, is now present in our midst. And so, Lord, we pray that you will write these more deeply into our hearts. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, our, uh, our passage in Joshua today has been understood by Old Testament Hebrew scholars to be one long, what is referred to as a sandwiching technique. It's a common Old Testament literary technique that focuses the reader toward a center point where the emphasis, the thesis, if you will, lies. And it lies at the center. And the center is verses 8 through 14. So that's where I'll be focusing this morning. See, this literary technique helps the reader focus on the main point. And the main point here has to do with the basis of Rahab's faith. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for, for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sahan and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. See, this passage displays for us very important aspects of the nature of faith. What does faith look like? As I was preparing, I was reminded of a story of a Jewish lawyer who was troubled by the way his son had turned out. And so he went to see his rabbi about it. He said, Rabbi, 
I brought him up in the faith. Gave him a very expensive bar mitzvah. Cost me a fortune to educate him. Then he told me last week that he has decided to become a Christian. Rabbi, where did I go wrong? Funny you should come to me, said the rabbi. Like you, I too brought up my boy in the faith, put him through university, cost me a fortune, then one day he came to me and told me he has decided to become a Christian. Well, what did you do? asked the lawyer. I turned to God for the answer, replied the rabbi. And what did God say? He said, funny you should come to me. the decision to become a Christian, the nature of that kind of faith is on display here. And the first thing that we learn, and it's by the way point one on your outline, for those of you who like to keep notes, you'll find an outline in the middle, outline in the middle of your bulletin there. Genuine faith requires a basis in real historic events regarding the actions and the inbreaking of God. But before we get uh, further into this, let me say a few words about what biblical faith is not. See, while the Christian faith has important philosophical aspects, it isn't merely a philosophy. It isn't merely about ideas or wishful thinking that makes you feel good or works to make a person into a functional American citizen. You know, there are popular authors and TV personalities that have written books and promulgated those kinds of views of faith. Rather, the biblical faith, the biblical Christian faith, trusts in what God has done and what God is doing. Again, I told you we're going to kind of go back and forth between these two, and I'd like to start with Peter this morning. I'd like to take us back to Peter's letter In verse 3, he writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter tells us the basis for his praise and the basis for his faith. Because God has acted out of his great mercy. He has given us something, a new birth into a living hope, a secure belief and trust. And how did we get all this? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, through a historically verifiable, evidence-based event in history, in time, and in place. And Rahab's faith clearly couldn't include anything about Jesus Christ directly. Her faith was in what God had done and has been doing in her time and place. She trusted in the might of Yahweh. And so biblical faith begins with a certain knowledge about the true God, the true God who acts and reveals himself, not some vague hopefulness about some kind of God out there, but the object of true saving faith is the real God who has acted and revealed himself on behalf of his people. The one who has covenanted and become and come into relationship with Abraham and his descendants and calls all people to come to him. 
to trust that this is the God who is acting and revealing himself. This is the real God. And it's the same for us today. See, you and I have trusted in Jesus Christ because we have first heard about what he has done. Maybe you doubted at first. But ultimately you have come to trust that the story of Jesus Christ is actually true, actual history. That what we have heard really happened and is true in objective history. And because we've heard the truth and trusted the truth, we took that first step in faith. And so for faith to take root, it begins with the hearing and the recognizing the truth of God in Jesus Christ. How will they trust in the one that they have not heard, Paul asks us in the book of Romans. The answer in the Greek is that they won't. How will those around us trust in Jesus Christ if we don't tell them? And so point two on your outline. Our calling as ambassadors of Jesus Christ is to open our mouths. To tell others of what Jesus has done for us. This is an absolutely fundamental key aspect to a healthy, great commission church. This is at the heart of the revitalization that God is doing in our midst. And so I can't urge you strongly enough to confess, to confess what Jesus has done in history, what God has consistently revealed through time, and what he is doing in your life. See, Rahab's confession can and should be a pattern for us. And so we begin by confessing. We confess first to ourselves and then to others. And we make this a daily practice on our lips. And if you do, I promise you, you will begin to see a transformation of yourself and others around you. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. See, the confession with our mouth is a bold statement in a society no matter what. And it needs to be a pattern of our life if we wish to see the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives and in our congregation. See, my experience with most American Christians is that they'll talk about almost everything except Jesus. Why is that? Let's get kind of personal for a moment. And I'm talking mostly about myself. Is it fear? Fear of being insulted? Fear of rejection? Is it shame? Are you ashamed of your faith in Jesus Christ? Is it assumptions? Do you simply assume everyone you meet is a Christian? Do you think it's the job of just a few with a certain gifting? Why is it that you don't speak of Jesus? What is holding you back for proclaiming the love, grace, and forgiveness of Jesus Christ? Look at what Rahab's confession is in verse 11. I told you you need to flip back and forth here. She says, when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on earth below. See, her confession 
is what God expected of his own people after they had experienced his working for years. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 39, we read, Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. And this remarkable woman, a sinner, a prostitute, is displaying a very deep and discerning faith, a deep and discerning spirit. She has recognized the majesty of God, who is the only God who exists and acts in the heavens and upon the earth. She goes from affirming God's actions as true and real to logically linking that, therefore, he is indeed glorious and majestic, the only God. So too, as Peter proclaims, we glory in Jesus recognizing how truly glorious he is, we praise him, even in the midst of our trials, he says. Why? Because all our trials and sufferings in light of the truth and reality of who Jesus is and what he has done are minor. And God ultimately uses them to purify us and to prepare, and to, uh, prepare us. Let me highlight something. You know, we often think that suffering in the life of a believer is very difficult and problematic for faith and for the Christian faith. Let me suggest that it is quite the opposite. The truth is that suffering for those who do not believe in God is much more problematic. For suffering in in that context has absolutely no meaning No purpose. For unbelievers, all that matters is a life of happiness and the removal of all that makes us uncomfortable because this world is all that counts. Life, therefore, is about creating meaning in a meaningless world and suffering and trials, well, they just get in the way of the pursuit of happiness and comfort. So point three on your outline is this. For Christians, suffering has a purpose. It is used by God in our lives for the purpose of forming Christ-like character. See, we do not work to avoid all suffering, but rather we pursue what is right, what is holy, and what is true. Despite the suffering, and even giving thanks for the suffering. Monica Dickens, in the book Miracles of Courage, wrote about David. David was a two-year-old with leukemia who was taken by his mother, Deborah, to Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston to see Dr. John Truman, who specializes in treating children with cancer and with various blood diseases. Dr. Uh, Truman's prognosis was quite devastating. He told her that he has a 50-50 chance The countless clinic visits, the blood tests, the intravenous drugs, the fear and pain. His mother's ordeal can almost be as bad as the child's because that she has to stand by, unable to bear the pain herself. See, David never cried in the waiting room. And although his friends in the clinic had to hurt him and stick him with needles, he hustled in ahead of his mother with a smile 
sure of the welcome he always got. When he was three, David had to have a spinal tap, a very painful procedure at any age. And it was explained to him that because he was sick, Dr. Truman had to do something to make him better. And they told it this way to him. If it hurts, remember it's because he loves you. The procedure was horrendous. It took three nurses to hold David still while he yelled and sobbed and struggled. When it was almost over, the tiny boy soaked in sweat and tears looked up at the doctor and gasped, Thank you, Dr. Tuman, for my hurting. See, David, Deborah, and Peter understood something vitally important about a Christian and the trials and pain and struggles in this life. They have meaning only in the midst of Christian faith. See, we never deny suffering and pain, for there is meaning and purpose only by trusting in a loving and always faithful God who reveals himself to us. So I need to ask, when was the last time you thanked the Lord for his hurting? If it hurts, it's because he loves you. He loves you. Now let me uh, take us to the next step in faith, and that is seeking the mercy of God. Look at verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. See, genuine faith doesn't stop with just recognizing the work and power of God. It doesn't stop with recognizing the historical truths that God has revealed himself and has worked in power. Genuine faith doesn't stop at recognizing the glory and majesty of God as the only true God. No, and, and this is point four. Genuine faith takes the step of entering into his mercy and receiving his grace. See, genuine faith, faith takes the step of recognizing that there is no other refuge but in God. And so Rahab takes that final step. She recognizes that she takes refuge in, in the only place that is available. Rahab doesn't just recognize the truth and tremble before that truth, but she realizes that there is mercy and grace available, and she takes hold of it. During the terrible days of the German Blitz of Britain during World War II, a father holding his small son by the hand ran from a building that had been struck by a bomb. In the front yard was a shell hole. Seeking shelter as quickly as possible, the father jumped into the hole and held up his arms for his son to follow him. Terrified, yet hearing his father's voice telling him to jump, the boy replied, I can't see you. The father, looking up against the sky tinted red by the burning buildings, called to his son, but I can see you. Jump. The boy jumped because he trusted his father. See, the Christian faith enables us to face life or meet death not because we can see, 
but with the certainty that we are seen. Not that we know all the answers, but that we are known. I'm often surprised about how God works. He could simply have commanded the Israelites to go forward without any preparation and that he would provide. But rather, and this is point five, God allows them to redeem their previous failings. See, 40 years earlier, they'd sent in spies through the land and saw the seeming unmovable challenges before them. And so in fear, 10 of those spies reported that they couldn't take the land, while two other spies, one who is now standing as the covenant representative leader of God's people, that is Joshua, he said that their God was greater and that he would give this land into their hands. But now, now they send out more spies. And in God's providential move, they show up in the house of a a prostitute. A prostitute who we have seen has repented and turned to the living God, who has made a remarkable confession of faith through the providential working of God in her heart and who has now entered into the shelter of his merciful heart. God has extended his hand to rescue these spies using that same prostitute whom he has called to himself. And now the reconciling report of these men is this. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. I don't want you to miss the encouraging message of God's providential, sovereign hand. Because he has indeed gone before his people to give them their inheritance. I also don't want you to miss something else. Look at the people God calls. See, God has gone before his people. The people were also aware of what God had done in power to lead his people. They were all melting in fear. All these two had the opportunity to repent and come to the one true God. But God had laid his hand on a prostitute. See, don't miss the message, which is so poignant and beautiful in the Gospels and in the life of Christ. And it's point six on your outline. God calls sinners and not the righteous. That the people of God are not a nice club, but a hospital for sinners. And while God gives us wonderful friends and support among his people, he calls upon each of us to still go out among those in our community who are desperately lost and tell them the story, God's story. To go out to the least, to those who are desperate, who need God's touch desperately, who need that assured, settled hope which is found only in Jesus Christ and in the gospel. You know, our deacons will soon be leading us in new and redeveloped mercy ministries into our communities, that we might indeed show the light, love, and hope of Jesus Christ to our growing and diverse community, as our mission statement tells us. And I pray that as they prayerfully envision 
how God is leading us into our community to serve and love them, that you too will be called and inspired to help lead and work with us in these vital ministries. You know, many years ago, in a mental institution outside of Boston, a young girl known as Little Annie was locked in the dungeon. The dungeon was the only place, said the doctors, for those who were hopelessly insane. In Little Annie's case, they saw no hope for her. She was confined to a living death in that small cage, which received very little light and even less hope. About that time, an elderly nurse who was uh, nearing retirement, she felt that there was hope for that little girl, so she started taking her lunch into the dungeon and eating outside little Annie's cage. She felt perhaps she could communicate some love and hope to that little girl. In many ways, little Annie had become like an animal. On occasion, she would violently attack the person who came into her cage. At other times, she would completely ignore them. And when that elderly nurse started visiting her, little Annie gave no indication that she even was aware of her presence. One day, the elderly nurse brought some brownies to the dungeon and left them outside the cage, close enough where little Annie could reach them. Little Annie gave no hint that she even knew they were there. But when the nurse returned the next day, the brownies were gone. From that time on, the nurse would bring brownies when she made her Thursday visit. Soon after, the doctors in the institution noticed that there was a change taking place. After a period of time, they decided to move little Annie upstairs. And finally, the day came when that hopeless case was told that she could go back home. But little Annie didn't want to leave. She chose to stay, to help others. In fact, she became the very one who cared for, taught, and nurtured Helen Keller. Little Annie's name was Ann Sullivan. Now the point of this is to understand, as those who belong to Jesus Christ, we always have hope. We can always step out in faith and trust. We can always be encouraged and enter the shadow of his mercy. See, our hope isn't a blind hope. We live in this fallen world and we will find ourselves experiencing trials and suffering and loss. And we might even come to the point of despair and wonder how we are going to get through the trials or how we're going to manage in the midst of suffering. All the while, we seem to forget that we have this mighty God who is our Father and has loved us beyond anything we could ever imagine or think. Let's learn to trust him more deeply. Let's be people who are found faithful to his vision and mission for Parkway. See, the overarching, consistent message of Scripture, which is highlighted here in Joshua and in the letters of Peter, is the faithfulness of God. But oftentimes, trusting in that faithfulness of God doesn't come in a flash of inspiration. But like a long rain, it soaks in almost imperceptibly over time. C.S. Lewis put it this way in A Grief Observed. 
like the warming of a room or the coming of daylight when you first notice them, they have been going on for some time. In every experience of life, God is working his grace in us to believe him, that with his whole heart and soul, he rejoices in doing us good, the kind of good that comes from his perfect wisdom and perfect love. As the prophet Jeremiah wrote in the book of Lamentations, I remember my affliction, and my soul is downcast within me, yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And therefore I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. Let's pray together. Gracious and loving God, we wait for you this morning. We trust you this morning. Maybe some of us for the first time. Maybe some of us have lost hope. Have lost hope through difficult times and trials. Have lost hope that you are still at work in our lives. This morning, Lord, we remember We remember who you are and what you have done for us. What you have done for us on the cross and in the resurrection. What you have done for us to deliver us. What you have done personally in each one of our lives. What you have done corporately in the midst of this church. We remember. We remember your faithfulness. We remember your love. We remember your character. We remember your grace. Thank you, Lord, for your abundant, abundant love. 